Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Welcome, welcome. It's, it's always good to come together and worship with song and to hear and learn the Word of God together. I want to say uh, hi to those of you who are at Eastside and those of you who are at Sherman Park and also those of you who are at Mayfair. Thank you for joining in today. I'm going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians today, and we're going to be talking about a few things from that book. I've got a certain amount of time to do the whole book, so I will not be talking about everything. I'm just some, but there are some things that I think we can relate to the entire book that will make some sense to us. But just as a little backdrop, 1 Corinthians... It's called for believers to be unified with each other. In this letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul is urging the church to be unified with him in his ministry. But opponents of Paul were spreading lies about him and the doctrine that he teaches, and they were mixing up the Corinthians. And Paul could see that the Corinthians, were, they were all over the place in what they believed and following all kinds of false teaching. In his first letter, he had to scold them for not holding fast to what he had taught them. And then in the second letter, he basically apologized and said that he regretted to having to write such a harsh letter to them. But then he said, but I don't regret it if it brought you to repentance. I regret having to write it, but if it brought you to repentance, then the end result makes it okay that I did write it. Listen listen to chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So either you're sorry that you did it or you're sorry that you got caught. It's kind of like that. Paul's opponents, they were undermining his work, claiming that his suffering proved that he was not a true apostle. But the truth is, and I think we all know this, the church was being formed doing great opposition, and they were being persecuted. Paul knew that well from both sides. He had been a persecutor of Christians, and now he himself was being persecuted. The false teachers' lies to the Corinthians were so convincing that many began to doubt and question Paul. So Paul is trying to put out fires that the enemies of Christ are setting in the church. This letter here is rich with so many things that it's going to be impossible for me to get through all of it in a half hour. So instead, let's just take a closer look at just a few of the rich treasures 
that he has written in this book. And hopefully we can get a big picture of what Paul is saying. So let's just start out with how he started this letter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So Paul here writes as a man who knows trouble to people who are in trouble. Matter of fact, later on in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, he spells out some of the afflictions that he endured. He says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. The word here that he uses for affliction, it always describes actual physical pressure on someone. So affliction equals physical pressure. The Archbishop R.C. Trench wrote, when according to the ancient law of England, those who willfully refused to plead had heavy weights placed on their breast and were pressed and crushed to death. This was literally the word that he used for affliction. So affliction equals physical pressure. When you hear the word affliction, just think of something actual physical pressing on you. Paul wants them to know this. Those who choose to become Christians choose to face trouble. A real Christian, outspoken, bold about it, is going to face trouble from a world that hates Jesus Christ. But how do you get by? I know that's the question. How, how do you get by? Well, the answer to this suffering is endurance. Endurance equals triumph. You know, all, these, all these words have meanings that can help us to understand them and maybe help us to be stronger as we stand in this world that hates us the same way they hate Jesus. This word does not mean grim, bleak acceptance of trouble. It's like, okay, I guess I got to go through it. It's not that. It means triumph. It describes the spirit that not only accepts suffering, but triumphs over it. You know, the devil loves to break us and leave us helpless and defeated like he tried with Job. But the comfort that God gives us comes with bravery. Comfort equals bravery. The word means brave. That's what it means. Christian comfort is the comfort that brings courage and it equips us, it equips you to cope with all that life 
can do to us. It is a sharing in the suffering of Christ. It's bravery to endure because to suffer for Christ is a privilege. This is what Polycarp, Polycarp was one of the first martyrs who had his life taken away from him for standing up for Jesus. This is what he said when they tied him to a stake ready to burn him alive. This is what he said. I thank you that you have judged me worthy of this hour. No fear, bravery, knowing that he had the comfort of God at his side. That's bravery under the heaviest affliction. You know, God gives you the bravery when you need it. There was this time when I had a, any of you remember, most of you are young, but any of you remember this, uh, this, this exercise, this fitness place called Vic Tanny? You do? Okay, one guy who's almost as old as I am. <laughs> Just one guy. Anyway, I had a membership there when I was a firefighter. On my off days, I would go and I would work out. And after I worked out for two, three hours, I would then go to the Olympic-sized pool and I would swim. And something came over me once. I said, I just want to see how long I can swim underwater. So this Olympic-sized pool, I got to where I could swim underwater all the way down and all the way back, and then halfway down before I had to come up for air. And I felt good about it, but I didn't see any reason for it except for it was just helping my lungs to be strong. Well, one night we got a call, house fire, children trapped. Oh, Lord. I hated that because I had children, and I hated for anything bad to happen to children. So when we pull up, we were assured that there were children trapped in this building because the parents came running to us. Our children are in there. Go save them, please. So we went in two by two. Me and the captain went one way, and, and the other two firefighters went the other way. And children like to either hide in closets or under clothes, thinking that that's going to save them from the fire, but really it's the smoke that gets you. And so we went into this room. It was full of clothes, and we were just looking and looking and looking and looking and, and, and searching under the bed and here and there. And there came a time when my air ran out. I couldn't breathe. So I could have panicked, but I was able to stay calm, and I went to the captain. I said, I was saying no air. And he says, okay, just there's a window. We're on the first floor. Just go out the window. I went to the window, and the window had bars on it, and the bars were locked. So I'm in a house that I've never been in before. It's smoky, so I still haven't been able to see the house, and now i got to find my way out with no air. Talk about the blessings of God. So I found a wall, and I just followed that wall wherever it took me, and I eventually made it to a window. And so I kind of took my air off and put it back on so I could go and find the door. And then I said, wait a minute, there's a window right here. Why would I go and try to find a door? So I kind of slid myself out the window, fell on my air cylinder that I had taken off so that I could get out of the window, and I, and I got a pinched nerve in my hip for it. But, but that's another story. The point that I'm making here is, is that he gave me the braveness and the calmness when I needed it the most. What we see is that through everything Paul suffered, he had an unshakable confidence in God. He knew now beyond any arguments what he could do for him. 
If God could bring him through that, everything he had already gone through, he could bring him through anything. Let me let you know this too. God will walk with you and comfort you and give you the bravery you need to face the trials that may come your way. Always believe that. So we can see that God is the God of all comfort. No matter what you're facing, he is there to comfort you, to strengthen you through the trial, to give you bravery to face it. Paul, who went through terrible sufferings, this is an apostle Paul, is telling you that God is there with you through it all. The result is that we then gain the power to comfort others who are going through it. So he started his letter off by assuring those who are suffering that God is the God of all comfort. As we move through this letter, if I were to find one theme that could cover all of what Paul is saying in, to the Corinthians in this letter, it would be chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. I'm going to read those verses to you right now. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So if I was to have a title that could carry us through this entire message, it would be this. And it's in the form of a question. Do you carry the aroma of Christ? Do you carry the aroma of Christ? You know, there was a time uh, at Sherman Park when some of the ladies were uh, there on Thursday night because they would go on Thursday nights to clean the the, the, the church up. And this lady named Emily, she has a lilac bush in her yard. And so she broke off or cut off a whole bunch of the, the little bushes, a little, uh, little about this tall. And she gave them to the people who were there cleaning. And my wife was one of them. And so Carlene brought, brought it home, put it in a jar with some water, and I wasn't at home when she did that. And so when I came home, everywhere I went in the house, I could smell the fragrance of those lilacs. That smell that the flowers left is what Paul has in mind here. He speaks of being led in a train. You know, the, the ladies who are getting married, and they got that dress with the long train behind them. That's following her everywhere she goes. So he speaks of being led in the train of the triumph of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to speak of being the sweet scent of Christ to men and to women. He says, to some the perfume of death and to others the perfume of life. Well, here's what he was thinking about when he was saying that. The Roman triumph. It's a parade that they had after a military victory in which the spoils of war were paraded on chariots through the city of Rome. Most important in this image is that train. 
of all the captives who were marched in chains through the streets to their execution at the end of the route. Every temple in the place was open and filled with garlands, and it was filled with incense. Everywhere you went, you could smell the aroma of victory. But Paul here, he doesn't portray himself as the victor, we won, we won. He portrays himself as a conquered prisoner being put on display. He was previously God's enemy, but is now defeated and being led to death in a display that reveals the majesty and power of God and effectively proclaims the gospel. Paul, just like you and I, were enemies of Christ, and we were conquered. We were defeated. We were put to death. Well, you don't think so? Listen to this. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. But it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God bless you. As the Roman priests burned the incense in the parade, that odor affected different people in different ways. And a group this large, I don't assume that everybody is safe. So some of you may be saved and some of you may not. What I'm saying may be affecting you in, some of you in one way. It may be affecting others of you in another way. To the triumphant soldiers, it meant life and victory. But to the conquered enemy, it meant defeat and death. They were on their way to be killed by the beast in the arena. So that smell didn't smell good to them. Using this image of this incense, Paul pictured the Christian ministry he saw believers as incense giving forth the fragrance of Jesus Christ in their lives and labors. There's a passage in chapter 10 that summarizes this spiritual an intellectual battle that goes on in our hearts and in our heads. And chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. A summary of what Paul is saying is, is yeah, we walk in the flesh because we're human, so we, we have no other choice but to walk in human flesh. But we don't fight like humans fight because we don't use human weapons. Our weapons have divine power. Our weapons tear down strongholds. The picture of a stronghold is a castle where you can close the gates and feel like everything you have in that gate is safe. Now picture this, the castle is your mind, and everything that you have safe in there are your thoughts, your ideas, your opinions, your arguments, your knowledge, your upbringing. You have all of that inside of your castle, and it's all locked away safe, and nobody can get to it. If you walk with Christ, if you are a part of his train giving off his aroma, you follow him and you fight for the minds and the thoughts of people. 
But there was a time when you had your castle closed off to Jesus, and he was not welcome. I remember that time in my life. I don't know if you remember, but I remember that time in my life. Your thoughts and your ideas, mine too, were not his. You didn't share his philosophy of life. Neither did I. You disagreed with what was right and what was wrong. I did too. Then he attacked your castle. He attacked mine as well. His attack on your castle didn't come with fire rocks, though. It didn't come with battering rams. It didn't come with bombs. His weapons were love and truth. And eventually, he defeated you as his enemy and recruited you as one of his soldiers. Nevertheless, I live. Now, as you follow Jesus into battle, you fight by tearing down strongholds in people's hearts and minds, and you take every thought captive to Jesus and his knowledge. You do this so that they can receive the aroma of Christ and ride side by side with you to the next castle that has to be conquered. To God, believers are the very fragrance of Jesus Christ. To other believers, we are the fragrance of life, but to unbelievers, we are the fragrance of death. In other words, the Christian life and ministry are matters of life and death. The way you live and walk can mean life or death to the lost world around you. You can give off the fragrance of Christ in so many ways, brothers and sisters. You can trust him through affliction. You can walk through it with bravery. You can have faith that God walks with you and comforts you. When people see you standing like that, they will sense, smell, that Jesus guides your every move. As Paul moves through this letter, we see that there is even an aroma you can have when it comes to giving. What you want to understand about giving is that it's the heart's attitude you have while you're giving that matters. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 9 say this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. In all of chapters 8 and 9, where Paul talks about giving, the word grace is mentioned 10 times. The meanings differ slightly in all these words, but here Paul is talking about human generosity. Paul knows that this is given by God, and so when people are spontaneously generous... To others, Paul sees that as evidence that God is working through them. I've known a few people in my life who would literally take the clothes off of their back and give it to somebody without a second thought. Carlene's mom was one of them. I've never seen more genuine giving and generosity. And I didn't just see it when she was giving it to someone. It flowed from her personality and all parts of her character. That's how you and I should want to be. And there are reasons that we should. Paul starts this section off using a farmer's example. If you sow a little, you get a little. 
If you sow a lot, you get a lot. We all know that the amount of harvest is based on the amount of seed that's sown. Let me say this first. I'm not telling you that if you give generously, you will become rich financially in this life. I'm not telling you that. It can happen at God's discretion, but most often, the rewards of giving are spiritual rewards now and spiritual and material rewards in eternity. So when considering what you might give, don't think about what you're going to get back. Paul, through this letter, encourages us all to give as he decides in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. Don't be shamed into giving or coerced into giving. Paul says that each believer should give what he wishes to give. Why does he say that? Because God loves a cheerful giver. So you and I, as believers, should shape our hearts to give unreservedly and cheerfully. Now, it is often taught from this passage that people must give until it hurts and then give some more. That idea is not found here or anywhere else in Scripture. You should, you should give, um, you shouldn't give unless you give cheerfully. As Pastor Frank said, if it's not from your heart, keep it. When considering what to give, there are things to remember. God is the one who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food. He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us produces thanksgiving to God. So shape your heart to be a giver, a cheerful giver. Don't worry, I haven't turned into a prosperity preacher encouraging you to get rich. I'm just teaching you that the more you give, the more you can give. Paul is saying that the Corinthians and you and I will be eternally blessed because of our giving to the needs of the church. Here's a thought. Eternal rewards await believers who meets the needs of people. Paul uses a word in verse 11, generous, that means simplicity, single-mindedness, generosity. It's a type of giving that is free from ulterior motives. If you don't, you don't, you don't give because you want something back. You give because someone needs you and you are blessed to do it. My mom makes quilts, and she, I, I interviewed her once and, and recorded it and made a video and put it on um, Facebook, and I asked her, how many quilts have she, she made? A thousand, fifteen hundred, over two thousand, and she has not sold one quilt. She has given them all away to people, every single one, and these quilts are beautiful. Here's what we've learned about giving. Bountiful giving leads to bountiful rewards. Stingy giving leads to stingy rewards. Paul uses Scripture to encourage giving generously, generously, I'm sorry, and freely because God loves a cheerful giver. Paul says God is ready to provide all that is necessary for generosity. Paul reassures that God will provide all that they need. And then Paul maintains that their generosity will bring a great harvest of thanksgiving to God. So learn to be generous with what you have and give what you are comfortable giving. If you think about it, no farmer ever thinks that when he is sowing that he is losing seed because he's expecting to get much more back. He willingly sows all that he can and trusts that God will bless the sowing with a bountiful harvest. God rewards your generosity with material abundance to make it possible for you to be even more generous. Most people become miserly in their giving because they worry that they won't have enough. But Paul says that at all times, God provides us with all that we need, so there's never any time when we can't be generous. 
This letter speaks of several ways that we can, be, we, we can emit the aroma of Jesus. You can be a comfort to each other. You can forgive each other. You can fight with love and peace as your weapons. You can be the light of the gospel. You can persuade others to reconcile with God. You can be a cheerful giver. You can spread the fragrance of his victory. You can carry the aroma of Christ. Last thing, for you to be the aroma of Christ, you must have him in your life. He calls on everyone to repent and call on him for salvation. If you have not yet done that, today is as good a day as any. With all sincerity, all you have to do is ask for forgiveness and ask him to come into your life and save you, and he will. Don't leave here before you do that. And if you do, at that point, you can also be a carrier of the aroma of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, we praise your holy name and we thank you for your graciousness, for your blessings, for all that you do for us. We thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to be that light that shines in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to give us these lessons from servants like Paul and others who you have put words in their mouth to tell them so that they can tell us, thus saith the Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you comfort us when we need you. And we thank you, Lord, that you allow us to be a part of your train, the train of your glory, the aroma of Jesus Christ, so that we can carry the sweet fragrance of the victory that he had on the cross. And Father, anybody who has not come to you in this audience, we just pray that today would be the day that you have touched their hearts and that they would come to you and that they would change and that they would join in this victorious army and go around invading people's castles for your glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you.